Hello and welcome, friends, to Inside the Writer's Cafe. I'm Cheryl Nason, and our show features the hottest authors and introduces you to exciting new authors talking about themselves and their latest book. Our show today is filled with magical beings, dark magic, and real-life historical perspective. In S.B. White's exciting sequel to The Twins of Fairland, The Twins of Fairland 2, the magical journey continues when one of the twins, Trey, discovers an ancient curse placed on the lineage of Curran. Queen Laurel is the last in the line of queens of Curran, and she's threatened with revenge by the dark spirit riders of Lothan. Trey and his twin sister Skylan must lead the people to a new land and escape the destruction of Fairland. Gary Nyhart puts readers into a time machine to explore recovery from drug addiction and alcoholism in his book King Charles of New York City. Attitudes toward drug and alcoholism were very different in America in 1900, when the use of opium and morphine and heroin and cocaine were all legal and often prescribed by doctors. Readers are introduced to an extremely passionate, powerful man, Charles Towns, without whom Alcoholics Anonymous probably would not exist. S.B. White is our guest today, and she is a very interesting person. She's an Arizona native, and she's lived on the Apache Reservation. She graduated from the University of Phoenix and has always had a desire to write. She actually has kept the stories that she wrote in college, and she has the first manuscript that she sent in and that was rejected. She's joining me today to talk about her new book, The Twins of Fairland 2. Welcome, S.B., and I'm going to call you Sharon. Is that okay? That's great, Cheryl. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I'm so excited to have you. I read the excerpt from the book on Amazon, and it's just so intriguing. When the excerpt stopped, I didn't want it to stop. I wanted it to keep on. So the first thing I want us to do is to pull our listeners in a little bit and give them some background from the first novel, sort of who's in it, who goes forward into the second novel so that they'll have a little bit of a transition and know what we're talking about, Sharon. So go, give me a little background. Okay, the Twins of Fairland came into <laughs> came into creation or being when my granddaughter said, Grandma, write me a book, and I want magic and animals that talk. And she gave me all this fantasy stuff. She's 11 and was getting into that realm. So I thought, oh, what can I, what can I write? And uh, that's where the Twins of Fairland um, started. And it's uh, twins, a boy and a girl, that were separated at birth and about... 12 years of age, they meet again under circumstances that they have to go back and, and save the the kingdom where they, they live, and they are a prince and princess, but he doesn't know it. He was raised in more or less dire circumstances, you know, having to eke out food and stuff for a living where she was opposite. So when they meet, they definitely don't like each other. <laughs> and uh, it's an interesting journey how they... Uh, meet, you know, he finds out he has another family, and uh, just their journey of getting to know each other. So that's kind of where the, the book came in. It has a lot of magic in it for children. It does have animals that talk, 
they have their guardian animals that uh, protect them. And uh, so um, Trey, who is the uh, main character in the book, meets his twin sister, Skyland. And they go back and save uh, the, the kingdom of Fairland. So that's that's the background on the first book. Okay, terrific. Now we we've we finished that, and now we're coming into the second book. And so we start off and we meet Trey again, and he's about to come into town. He's about to come. He's getting his horse pat, and he's about to ride into town. So tell me a little bit about what happens in this book. Well, the twins do pick up where everything's going great, you know. Um, Trey's hidden, or his family that he was raised with moves in, and they they come to live in Fairland with uh, the, his mother, the queen, and everything's going wonderful and great, and then something happens. And that's where the twins, too, pick up. Um, they find a... An ancient curse that's come into being, and then he has to team up with his sister again because, as old Nanny, who uh, is a character in the first book, she says, "I peace never lasts." <laughs> well, the characters in the first, the characters in the first book do carry over into the into the second book, so it, it is a continuation. Uh, you can pick up the second book and read it, but uh, the background for the book is in the first book, so I, I challenge everyone to read the first book and then go to the second. That's why I thought it was important that we talk about the first book so that people would know that there is background material, but the second book is a standalone book. But you'll know more about what's going on and understand the situation better if you do go pick up the first book, which is Twins of Fairland, because this is a continuation of the story. Now, in the first book, they they defeated this rider of the upland, and there was a lot of fighting and a lot of magic and a lot of battles, and there's a mystic shaman whose name is, am I pronouncing it right when I call him Malrock? That's what I call him. That, okay, that's what I thought it looked like. He's in the first uh-huh. book, and, and we see him again in the second book. And Trey and his sister are they are living in different places, and there are a lot of different people in their lives. Uh, Skyland has sort of got an on-again, off-again, uncertain romance with a man named Dallas. Mm-hmm. And Trey is, I get the feeling that... They're trying to fix him up with Moon. Yeah, a young little village girl that uh, he he grew up with, and she has a really she has a big crush on him, doesn't she? Oh, she does, big time. <laughs> so there's a lot of ro- a little more romance in the second book because the twins are older, and but still there's magic, and I, I tried to keep it moving and exciting and fast paced for the the younger reader, the preteen, early teen. Um, to keep their attention, so uh, I I was pleased with the second book. I wasn't going to write it, but my granddaughter said, "Oh, there has to be a sequel. We can go back and find another mystery." <laughs> so I thought, "Can I do this again?" So we did it again. <laughs> how did you? What's your process, Sharon? Do you? Oh. How do you come up with your? I mean, do they just come to you? What's your process for writing? Yeah, you know that's the hard part. I um, sat and kind of think up the characters and then as I got it outlined I, I called my granddaughter and says what do you think of this and then when I wrote something and I would send it to her and she'd read it I said do you think it's too violent for that age because when you fight for your life you know it, um, 
it can get uh, brutal and, and, and bloody, so I tried to temper all that down. So to say I knew how the book would start and end on either book, I, I didn't. Uh, and I know most people will have their book outlined and ended and just kind of fill in between, but it kind of just morphed and grew, I guess that's what I want to say. You know, actually, I've interviewed lots and lots of different authors, and some people outline, I mean, down to the the nth detail, but other people don't. I mean, it just Mm -hmm. depends on your process, because each author has their own way that they approach creativity. And I love it that you're bringing your granddaughter into this. She's sort of your co-author in a way, isn't she? She is. She's she's my inspiration and co-author, and uh, we have a lot of fun, and it keeps us in touch. Well, yeah, and I would think that it would help you bond really strongly with her. Mm-hmm. Does she want to be a writer? Does she have any interest? Uh, she has, and she is actually pretty good, but the latest I've heard now, she wants to be a dentist, and I hope... <laughs> I can't believe her being a dentist, but that's okay. Well, maybe a dentist and a writer on the side. Yeah, writer on the side. That would be okay. She can tell her patient stories. (laughs) She works on the team. (laughs) So, who do you enjoy reading, Sharon? Whenever you're looking um, for a book, you know, I um, I'm retired. But I always worked a lot of hours, raised a family, and I, when I would read for personal enjoyment, I would read to escape. So I, I love a good mystery. I love James Patterson. Um, and so I think when I write that, that's, that's kind of what I write, kind of a, a fantasy, a escape-type feeling to the books. And, uh, you know, after school and work and everything you have to do, I, that's always been my way to get away from it all, get a good book and go hide somewhere and read and go somewhere, go somewhere different for a while. So that's what I read. I, I thought about it and I thought, you know, I read to maybe escape for a little bit. I think that's a great way to handle your stress is to just mm-hmm. sort of go somewhere else. Yeah. And I, I think that's been my, I'm sorry to interrupt, my, my goal is to keep, children reading, hey, you know, if you're bored, get a good book and let's go somewhere different. You don't have to, you know, um, always be in front of a TV or playing a video game or something. So I I love reading and and I want to promote that if I can. Oh, I love that. I think that that's so important. And I worry that so many of our young people are so focused on, you know, everything electronic, their telephones Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, video games or things that are not about reading. Hopefully, one of the things that will pull them in is being able to download books like yours on their phones or on their iPads, their tablets, and be able to read electronically. Now, for me, I like to have that book in my hand. I like to touch it. Yeah. I'm old-fashioned that way, too. It's hard for me to read on my iPad, although I do have some books downloaded. Now, but I love I love the book. I love to cradle it and fold it and turn the pages. <laughs> yes, me too. But, it's that kinesthetic uh-huh. feel of the book. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's something about that. 
if if the listeners want to get hold of a copy of Twins of Fairland or the Twins of Fairland Two, it is available electronically as well as in in hardcover. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, Twins of Fairland Two should be out um, within the month. It's at the printer right now, um, but it will be available on Amazon and through most any any bookstore that goes online you can order it or go to author house directly and you can order it can i download it right now on the kindle version on amazon or is it not quite ready it's not quite ready i don't think it's out there so if they want to read that excerpt that i read they can go to amazon.com and put in the name of the book and this one is the twins of fairland 2 with the the Roman numeral 2 by S.B. White, W-H-I-T-E. And if they just put that up there in the book search feature and just click on the search engine, it will bring you right up because that's exactly how I found you. And there's a really nice, nice excerpt that will let people get the flavor of what this book is like. I believe they can go to Author House and do the same thing. Is that correct? I think so, yes. Now, do you have a website? Uh, yes, I do. Um, again, it's uh, sbwhite.org, O-R-G, instead of com, and it is a new creation just up, but it's got a lot of my former stories I wrote when the, my grandkids were younger, and uh, there's stories from ages 2 through 10 that's pre-reading to encourage kids to read so if you have younger readers, uh, they can go to the website and read off of any device. Uh, it, you know, it'll just come right up on your screen, whether you're on a, a cell phone or an iPad or uh, even a computer. Is there a way on so, your, your website to contact you? Yes, there's contact information, and then there's also, you know, how to order the twins, and then the, the twins of Fairland do soon as it becomes available. So I would like, you know, if anyone has younger readers or wants to encourage them or give them a website to go to and read some stories, I, um, they're out there on sbwhite.org. Is there any place on your website to give feedback about the books? Uh, yes, there is. Um, it's uh, contact us or blog. You can go in and uh, fill out, you know, what you want. And I'd love feedback, love feedback on the stories. Um my goal is if I can get a quote, quote reader base and I've got some young writers, maybe once a month, maybe to feature something other children have written and put out there. Oh, I think that's great, Sharon. I think that's absolutely a wonderful idea. When the readers finish, if they pick up a copy of The Twins of Fairland 2, they read the book and they finish. Did you just write it for them to be entertained or... When they finish, is there something that you want them to leave with? Um, I think when the twins are feral and two, I think they're going to leave with the importance of family, the importance of um, protection. I don't want to tell anyone how it ends because it'll give the book away. No, right. I don't either. But I, yeah, it, it does, does pull you in. And um, there was a couple of times when I <laughs> wrote a couple of the chapters and things I sit and cry and I thought oh and I called my grandson and I said I just killed blank blank I'm not going to tell you that and he said that's okay grandma you created him you can kill him 
you know the characters the characters become I've written fiction mm-hmm. myself and the characters become very close to you it sounds a little bit yeah. nuts but they become mm-hmm. sort of real don't they 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 do you you live with them so long and, and writing a book and getting it up it could be you know a good year or two and uh you know, you think about them, and you think, what can I do with them next, or, you know, uh, you know where will they go? And they, they tend to go where they want to go if you ever, you know, you say, how do you write this? Sometimes you just kind of say, oh, well, we're going here. Well, that's interesting. So, mm-hmm. um, Yes, and they won't do, if you want them to do something they do not want to do as a character, they will not yep. do it. It's very interesting. I've heard other writers say exactly the same thing. Sharon, you're delightful. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. And I wish you so much luck with the twins of Fairland, too. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Cheryl, for your time. I appreciate it. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Joining me today to talk about his book, King Charles of New York City, is Gary Nyhart. Gary's a graduate of Ohio Wesleyan University, and he's been interested in the history of addiction and recovery from alcohol and drugs for many years. It was pure chance that he stumbled upon a copy of Habits That Handicap by Charles Towns. And the rest, as they say, is history. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Gary. Very glad to be here, and thank you for that introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I want to put our listeners in a little bit of a time machine. Let's take them back to the year 1900, because things were very different. Opium and morphine and heroin and cocaine and marijuana were all legal substances, and you could just get anything you wanted. Not only were they legal substances, but doctors were prescribing those drugs for a variety of maladies like sleeplessness. You could go to the grocery store or you could order these drugs by mail order. That was 1900. Enter Charles Towns. Tell me a little bit about Charles Towns. Well, he... One of his first indictments was of the patent medicine industry and and doctors in general for being responsible for creating the addiction crisis, what he called the addiction crisis, in the country. Uh, In that era, the average addict might have been a 45-year-old Caucasian woman who for one reason or another, maybe as a result of giving birth, was given morphine, and as a result, she became a permanent morphine patient who could stay on morphine uh, indefinitely. Charles Town saw this and thought that doctors and pharmaceutical enterprises were exploiting the patient. He thought that was a great evil. He thought that that was something that needed to be eliminated in our in our culture there was nothing good about any of the drugs morphine opium heroin cocaine it would be better off if none of them ever existed in the world and for tops he hated 
cigarettes or tobacco at least as much and as an afterthought also despised alcohol. So he wanted us as a society to live in every way substance-free and not have to rely upon various substances to either eliminate pain or change our mood. Now, he was a man who put his beliefs into action. He was a drug ambassador to China. I don't understand what that is. I had never heard that term until I read your book. Tell me a little bit about what that means. There was an admitted problem with the Empress of China that looked at her country and found hundreds of millions of opium addicts. And as a goodwill gesture from the United States, Charles Towns was sent by the Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, uh, soon to become president, to be a drug ambassador uh, from the United States to China to help them solve their opium problem. Charles Towns wanted to go there on his own pocket, found found a hospital. He did so despite the obstacles of the empress herself, who decided he chose someone else to administer these this opium cure. Charles Towns persevered, treated 4,000 uh, patients in in China, claimed to have cured them all, then went to a Shanghai conference in 1909, was proclaimed to have the only opium cure in the world in return to the United States, a conquering hero, much in the uh, as if he was an Indiana Jones character. That notoriety is what led to his treatment being published in the American Medical Association, supported by many... Uh, doctors that were uh, very, very prominent in the in the Northeast, and then he was considered to be the most knowledgeable person in treating addiction in the world. And he opened this magnificent hospital on Central Park. I mean, talk about you almost have to talk about this with your pinky in the air. It's it was such a Tony address. He attracted only the elite, and his approach to treatment I found very interesting. Tell me a little bit about that. It was known as the Belladonna treatment, uh, Belladonna, Hyoscyamus niger, and Xanthalum are the three main ingredients. It was thought of as being a deliriant, in other words, to make the patient unaware of the amount of agony he might have through the period of immediate withdrawal. It would carry him through. The the belladonna treatment was administered on the hour for 50 hours, and upon the the patient getting glassy-eyed and a dry throat, he was thought then to be um, cured of his addiction. He would have remained in the hospital if it was alcohol for a maximum of five days. This medical approach was considered to be 90% effective. And of course, Towns thought that if in fact you as a patient, if he never saw you again, then of course the procedure worked. He never did have actually any formal follow-up 
with any of his uh, uh, patients. As a matter of fact, he never wanted to see any of his uh, patients again. He figured if he followed up with you, then he was undermining your recovery, doubting your recovery. He thought if he left you alone, you'd be far better off. But that's how he could also make such exorbitant claims that the Belladonna treatment was successful. I think that's so interesting. And he had, I mean, all of the New York celebrities, anybody who was anybody, if they had an issue with drugs, right there. They were at the town's clinic and checked in and, quote, they were cured in 50 hours. Well, yes, and uh, W.C. Fields and Lillian Russell and uh, John Barrymore were among the very famous clients of Towns Hospital. You could have your own valet there. You could have your own butler. Um, you could have your own florist come in. It was a very exclusive uh, location. After all, um, 293 Central Park West doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to people not familiar with Manhattan, but the, if you start and think of the May, Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, the, the, that parade starts just south of where uh, the town's hospital used to be located. And the place, and again, this is an address that looks over Millionaire's Row. Today, there's simply mansions and museums uh, that are, uh, that populate that area of Central Park. It's among the wealthiest addresses in the country. There was this coalescence that happened at the hospital that I, I found so interesting because there was a there were three people there at exactly the same time, and if any one of the three had not been there, it seems that things would be so different. There was a Dr. William Silkwood, and you've characterized him as the doctor who loved drunks. There, right. was, there was Charles Towns, and then there was Bill Wilson. Tell me who Bill Wilson is, and tell me why it was important that these three men were together. Bill Wilson became a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He uh, had uh, vi- he visited Towns Hospital and got uh, sober after his fourth visit there. Silkworth was uh, a doctor who originally was a little doctor that l- loved addicts, but he and Towns were driven out of the business of treating addicts and um, and uh, treated alcoholism basically to stay employed. It was Towns that hired Silkworth in, uh, in 1929. Had Charles Towns not hired Silkworth, most likely when Bill Wilson had his white light experience, which led him to become uh, to be sober for the rest of his life, had Silkworth not been there to reinforce Bill Wilson on his white light experience, in other words, saying, whatever happened to you, I don't know what it is, but you're sure better off than what you were doing before had someone not been there like Silkworth, Wilson probably would have been told he was crazy. Uh, Towns would have probably have told him he was crazy. And, And as a result... Um, without receiving the reinforcement, we may never have learned who Bill Wilson even was. And if Alcoholics Anonymous was to be formed, it most likely would have been formed by somebody else. 
And had it not been for these three men being together without towns, the book might not have received the amount of publicity that it received so that it got the public's attention. Is that right? Well, yes, it is right. It isn't very well known that uh, Charles Towns, uh, upon seeing the success that Bill Wilson was having in helping people get sober, uh, it was uh, Towns that decided to help finance the writing of the of the uh, book Alcoholics Anonymous, and le- he lent the uh, this young author who had never written a book before. He lent him four thousand dollars in nineteen up uh, in, until uh, in nineteen thirty nine, which is the equivalent of fifty thousand dollars today. Without that uh, financing, which uh, the Bill Wilson and a number of other people lived on, uh, the book Alcoholics Anonymous would never have been published in April of nineteen thirty nine as it was. If we fast forward out of our time machine and we come back to 2015 how do you think those lessons of the past or what we look at in that past is applicable today well we surely know that um, uh, alcoholism has been generally represented as a disease and addiction is as well the uh, it was Charles Towns that wished that there be a medical model to treating uh, alcoholism as well as uh, addiction through a variety of circumstances. Charles Towns was there when the criminal model of treating addiction took form in the 1910s. That was not his intent, but that was the result. As a result of our criminal model, we have had hundreds of thousands, and I could say millions, of people that have ended up behind bars as a result of the criminal model of dealing with addiction. One can highly question whether or not this is an approach that has been for people's best interest and in terms of whether or not going forward this is a model that will work for the betterment of the addicts and society in general some significant mistakes have been made over the years this book is meant to address what some of those mistakes may have been how uh, when they occurred and whether or not this is really what we want to do as a society going forward with the problem that the criminal model has not been able to solve. One of the things that I really like about what you've done with the book is that you've given me an insight into an area that I'd never even thought about before. This is, I think, a part of American history that's not really been brought to the fore, not really been brought to the forefront. People really don't know these names, and they really don't know how all of this came together and how all of this came about. I just find this fascinating. I think you've done a really good job with it, Gary. 
Well, thank you. The Harrison Act, which was used to implement narcotic prohibition, gets lost entirely among episodes like the sinking of the Lusitania, the start of World War One, uh, and if you look at a book, uh, the history of Woodrow Wilson, um, sometimes you may not even find the Harrison Act even being mentioned, even though he's the one that signed the legislation that has led um, uh, to uh, today's criminal model. Amazing. Well, let's. I think that we've probably titillated our listeners with wanting to know more. If they would like to read an excerpt of the book, they can go to your website. Would you give them that address? It's uh, GaryNightheart.com, and you can go and read the, the first chapter of the book um, at, at that uh, website. Let's spell your last name for them, Gary. It's okay. It's uh, uh, N-E-I-D-H-A-R-D-T. Now, so if, the, if they want to buy the book, can they buy the book on your website? Not on my website. It does connect them to uh, directly to Amazon. The list of places where you can get the book now is Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, A-Books, Book Depository, Kobo, Indigo, Half.com, Alibris, iBooks, Better World Books, Target.com, and IndieBound. So they can get it lots of places. Yes, and some of those places provided in PDF format. In other words, they can get it in hard copy or PDF. It's available electronically as well, right? Yes, it is. Okay. One more thing. When our listeners pick up a copy of the book, they read it cover to cover and put it down for the last time. What do you hope they take away? That this is a story that has been missed by even some of our best historians that Charles Towns has a quite a message uh, for us and it's a message that deserves to be heard well best of luck with the book it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you you're very interesting and so is the book thanks for being our guest today Gary Well, thank you very much. Our time is up, and we'd like to thank you for yours. Remember, pick up a good book and read.